Good evening and welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We have some big stories for you today. More data about the Omicron variant. On most counts, it's not looking good. There are, there are a few silver linings, but it, it seems like it could be a difficult couple of months. We're also going to be talking about two incidents where the West is clearly freaking out about the rise of China and making itself look ridiculous. And Sharon Graham's interesting decision to cut Unite funding to the Labour Party. To talk about all of this, I'm joined by Aaron Mustani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on this evening. Pleasure as always. Pleasure is all mine. On last Friday's show, we spoke to Professor Deenan Pillay about the Omicron variant of COVID-19. And one of the main conclusions I came away with was that we would simply need to wait for more data before knowing how bad any Omicron wave would be. Well, that data has started coming in, and with a few notable exceptions, it's not looking good. The latest data from the Gauteng province of South Africa show just how fast Omicron is spreading there. The current Omicron wave is already as large after 20 days as the Delta wave was after 42. And what that means is while it took 20 days to get to 4,000 cases, it may only take two and a half days to get to 8,000. The estimate at the moment is that there is a 2.5 day doubling time when it comes to the Omicron variant. So that could get pretty nasty pretty quickly. In case anyone looked at that graph and thought, oh, this must just be because they're doing more tests, test positivity has gone from less than 1% to almost 20% since the start of the Omicron wave. The most worrying of them all, weekly hospital admissions, they are rising faster than in previous waves. You might remember that there was some, there was some speculation that the Omicron wave, while being more transmissible than Delta, could be milder. These statistics do not suggest that is the case. Hospitalizations are going up at a quicker rate than they did in previous waves. So you know, it doesn't look like this is a mild disease. Now, we haven't had a government briefing on Omicron since Tuesday. So we haven't heard from any of the, the, the chief scientific advisors or the chief medical officer. But Independent Sage did a broadcast earlier today, which I found really useful. It's really good. Um, I'm going to show you some key sections from Christina Pagel's analysis of the data on Omicron. It's a fairly long clip, but it, it, it really helped me understand the situation we're in. So I think it, it's really worth your time. Let's take a look. You know, it seems like longer, but it was only a week ago that we really first learned about it and South Africa had their first press briefing about it. Um, it has been spreading and still is spreading very fast in South Africa, particularly in Hauteng province, which is um, where Johannesburg and Pretoria cities are. And this is a number of reported cases each day in the province. And it's on a log scale because on a log scale, exponential increases are straight lines and you can see it a bit more clearly. Um, and these blue dots are Sundays and Mondays, which are the lowest reporting day. So it doesn't, it's not actually falling here. It's just that's a weekend effect. And what you can kind of see is that at the beginning of November, it was going up, but not super rapidly. And that's likely as Omicron was gaining dominance over Delta. It started off being quite a small proportion of cases. And really by the middle of November, it was, it was dominant. And it was most cases in um, Hauteng. And then since then, you kind of have the purer increase in growth um, that's due to this variant. And if you can fit an exponential to it, and the main thing here is that since it's been dominant since the middle of November, you're getting 
an increase, really quite consistent fit here of 25% growth a day. And that corresponds to three to four day doubling. And that is what we're seeing in Haoteng province, which is really high. We've not seen that kind of growth in COVID really since the very early days of the pandemic. And if you wanted to look at it on a kind of a normal chart, that's what it looks like. And what you can see is that, that the early growth is kind of hidden. So it looks like nothing much is happening and then suddenly it shoots up. But that's exponential growth. So what do we know and what don't we know? We absolutely know that Omicron has a growth advantage over Delta in South Africa. We know it's spread rapidly. We don't know if it's more severe once you're infected. The advantage does seem to be more from immune escape than infectiousness. And that means that we, can, we must rely less on population immunity to prevent growth. So you can't say, well, those people have been affected, so we're fine. That's not the case. Now, what we don't know exactly how that fits in with the vaccines. We know that it's seeded in many countries worldwide, including here. I look today and at the moment there are about 60 cases confirmed um, in the UK. It's likely that there are probably hundreds here already that we haven't spotted yet. It might be growing rapidly here. If it is, it's not going to be noticeable in daily numbers for a few weeks. And I think experts, you know, Danny and Sheena can talk about this, expect that boosters should still prevent severe illness and death. And that's why we're boosting but we are still waiting for those results from the first experiments, the vaccine escape, and they should come in a couple of weeks. And they're going to be so important for trying to work out where we are and how bad it is. But the UK context is really different to South Africa. It's a much older population. We have a much older population. We're much more vaccinated and much more boosted, which is really good news. But it is winter here, not summer. And we already have a large Delta wave going on. So anyway, we already have a lot of infection around. So adding to that is probably not a great idea. But the good news that came out yesterday as well is that COVID boosters are really, really good and really strengthen immunity. And again, we'll talk about that um, a bit later. And it does seem as if the boosters um, protect you more against other variants, although we haven't, it's not been tested against Omicron. And just um, returning to this chart, the UK is probably around here. It might even be back in October. So you know, we're not going to, we're not in a situation where we're suddenly going to see accelerated growth. We're not, but we might see it in three to four weeks. The whole point of what we're trying to do now is stay in this flat bit for as long as possible so we can boost as many people as possible before we get to this stage. And the likelihood is that there will be a point at which we're in this stage. That was Christina Pagel from Independent Sage. I found that explanation of why exponential growth means we might not notice Omicron for a few weeks before it then suddenly surges really helpful. I have to admit, it was sort of in my mind that, oh, it's, you know, it's everywhere already. It's so transmissible. No, even if it is incredibly transmissible, there'll still be a long period before we really see it, before we really can, you know, can tell and, and can feel um, what is happening. Of course, when that surge happens, Britain will be in a very different situation to South Africa. That's because while we have an older population, so that, that would make us more vulnerable, we are also much more vaccinated. That means hospitalizations might not surge in the same way here as they are doing there. Of course, this isn't this isn't a good news story on a global level. This is a consequence of vaccine apartheid, but but it matters if we're predicting, if we're trying to work out what is going to happen here. And at this point, you might be thinking, the Omicron variant escapes immunity, so the vaccines aren't going to save us this time. We don't have that protection. Well, on that question, I want to show you another clip from that Indie Sage briefing earlier today. Danny Altman is a professor of immunology at Imperial, 
and he sounded quite positive. If you're trying to narrate the story of Omicron, it's like any of the variants we've been through, isn't it? It's going to be to do with trying to understand what's different about severity, what's different about transmission, and what's different about immune evasion. And people are racing to tell all those stories in real time. Um, most people trying to do it, if they can, over, over the next few weeks. And what I feel, this is just speculation when I look at the data, is so I was one of the people who was going on the telly at the end of last week saying how scared I was because I was eyeballing those mutations and seeing 32 different mutations all in the kind of business end that the antibodies bind to compared to Delta, which had 10, which was the worst one I knew so far, and thinking, you know, maybe we were going to be scuppered on um, our protective immunity from our vaccines. And I think maybe I was being too speedy and too naive. And maybe it isn't playing out like that because already the reports from South Africa are that people getting hospitalized are, again, overwhelmingly the unvaccinated, not the vaccinated, as if their residual vaccine immunity, even in Omicron, is buying them some protection. And my assumption is that if one can get people boosted so they've really got their sky-high antibody levels, um, you know, I, I always talk about this, this concept of protective headroom, about how far your antibodies could drop before you're in trouble. If you've got, um, you know, levels of antibody in the thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, if they drop 30 or 40 because of the, of the mutant, they're still okay. And that's where I think we have to get to. And I think, I think you know, most people who've been boosted are, are hopefully in the safe zone. That was Danny Altman suggesting that while this variant does have so many mutations, that it, it will evade immunity to some degree, our vaccines should still protect us all from severe disease. Aaron, it's been seven days since we last discussed Omicron. I want to know, are you feeling calmer or more stressed than you were this time last week? Well, after you've um, so expertly laid out all that information, Michael, I have to say I, I, I can feel my blood pressure rising ever so slightly. I don't have my yeah. Fitbit on, but I'm sure my heart rate has uh, you know, gone up three or four beats per minute, even though I'm sitting down very comfortably talking to you. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem good. There are some positive things. I think in the last 24 hours, there was another <clears throat> there was another antibody treatment which was announced in the UK. It seems to reduce the number of hospitalizations and deaths by 79% amongst extremely vulnerable adults. So it's important to say there's, there's, there's treatments for people who, you know, even if, even if this gets past vaccines, even if they're in deep trouble, even if they're vulnerable, there are now, unlike a year ago, 18 months ago, multiple treatments to help them. So, I mean, there are still lots of positives, and I, I think people are still behaving somewhat sensibly. You still look at sort of footfall to large indoor areas, it's still massively down on, on pre-COVID. Like you say, though, the nature of exponential growth, we're going to have to wait and see. It could, it could be the case that things get very grim in January, because, of course, people go across the country, see loved ones, friends, people let their hair down in December, particularly after the last best part of two years, people are going to want to hang out. You know, that, that could create a mess, and it's very speculative, even as those very esteemed scientists talked about there. Uh, but but I, wouldn't get, I wouldn't get freaked out yet. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't understate what's going on either. Like you say, the, the growth with Omicron is, is really stark. I was feeling relatively calm until I saw those graphs from John Byrne Murdoch. It suddenly felt like all the life had been taken out of me when I saw that, that angle on that hospitalization chart. Really, really worrying. I suppose my, my two thoughts there is, is one, the, over, the only silver lining for us is the vaccine. So having a variant that transmissible, that much more transmissible than Delta, is just going to, 
I, I just can't imagine how difficult this is going to be in places where vaccine coverage is much lower than it is here. It, it just looks like, you know, when that surge comes, when that peak comes, those curves may look like almost everyone is going to get COVID at almost the same time, which will collapse health systems. It will more than collapse health. So, you know, that, that's, that's a disaster. And in the context we are in here, where we do have lots of vaccines, lots of boosters, and they do seem to be very effective at, uh, at preventing severe disease. The issue, again, is even if we have that high degree of protection, and no one individual has to worry that much because each of us with those with those boosters, obviously, obviously we have different levels of risk. If you're immunocompromised or older, then even when you've got that booster, you're, you're probably not going to feel that relaxed. But the booster does provide lots of protection. On a population level, if we all get it at the same time, then even if, you know, 0.1%, of people have a severe reaction after being double vaccinated or triple vaccinated, that's still enough that that's going to massively overwhelm the NHS. So those, those curves I do find very, very worrying. Now, this is a serious situation. It would be a good time um, for the media, for the government to be having a serious conversation. Instead, what we've been talking about over the past few days is Christmas parties and snogging under mistletoe. So the the story kicked off when Therese Coffey, who is uh, Minister for the Department of Work and Pensions, um, said that, you know, people can go to parties, but you shouldn't be snogging. Sajid Javid, speaking to ITV, pushed back against that claim. People can snog who they wish. Yeah, I'll certainly be you know, kissing my wife under the mistletoe. It's a Javid family tradition, and it's got nothing to do with the with the government who you uh, kiss or anything like that. But uh, the only thing is just, you know, there's guidance already out there, and just be cautious and enjoy yourselves. They're saying just be cautious and enjoy yourselves. I should say, I do recommend watching that whole Indie Sage briefing. I hadn't watched them for a while, but I, I watched today because I was very interested in the topic, and it, I did find it very informative. Nearly all the, the contributors to that discussion were quite against Christmas parties. The logic from Christina Pagel especially was to say, what we want to do is we want to push that. They're basically saying that surge is inevitable. There is going to be an Omicron surge. But what we want to do is push that as far into the future as possible while we boost large sections of, of the population. The government is saying, no, you don't, you don't really need to do that. Continue with your parties. And I suppose their argument is that the booster campaign is going well enough that we don't actually have to push back um, the vaccination program as, sorry, push back that, that surge as urgently as we otherwise would. I've got a chart here which is showing how well Britain are doing compared to a bunch of other countries when it comes to boosters and ministers. So you can see there we've had over 25% of the population is now triple vaccinated. And of course, because of the way um, that the the eligibility has worked for that. That will be, you know, most of the people who are vulnerable to COVID nineteen. So we already have boosted a lot of people, and we we will have targeted those boosters to go to the right people. Aaron, where do you sit on the Christmas parties question? I don't want us to, you know, get into snogging under mistletoe, but it, it is an important question. It is what you know. It's the decision lots of people will be making at this point in time. How comfortable are they? going to a Christmas party, or I suppose the more complex one is how comfortable are you organising a Christmas party? Because then you have some responsibility mm. for, for what happens there. Where, where do you stand on this? I think as it stands today, I would say I have no problem with Christmas parties. If people are taking relative precautions, if they're relatively small, I think most importantly on the day, you would, you would have to submit proof of a recent test, which I think we should be doing a lot more of. Um, and I say that because Sage today um, said that basically they think that COVID will be a threat to the NHS for five years. 
and that we will probably need testing for up to a decade. And so if we're not going to have a Christmas party this year, by that logic, you wouldn't have it next year or the year after or the year after or the year after. And so what I would say is what's what sensible is clearly a, a party. Testing is how you get in. We go back to the whole idea of vaccine passports. We don't necessarily need the vaccine passport. But clearly, to be able to access mass indoor events, people should be submitting a test. I think that's perfectly sensible. Um, I don't think that's authoritarian. I think otherwise the alternative is, you know, repeated lockdowns, particularly if we get, you know, more pernicious variants. So that, that would be my my response, you know, harder, better, faster, smaller with testing. Uh, and I think it's important to say there's, there's, of course, and I'm sure many of our audience really sympathize with this. There's a huge mental health aspect here. And people lost Christmas last year. And it's not just about Christmas opening presents. And it's basically when you take a time out from life as normal, work kind of dials th things down a, a couple of notches, a bit like midsummer, like August. You barely see anybody in the office or wherever you work. Not, not true for everybody. You know, I worked in retail around Christmas, but true for, for most people. And I think it's important that we, we don't lose sight of that. So we shouldn't be saying, let's write off Christmas. Let's have a lockdown. People shouldn't be seeing one another but it needs to be reduced in scale and scope. I think we're in the same place on this. You know, I'm, I'm not 100% certain here, and I do think Christina Pagel's argument makes a lot of sense, which is to say we want to push this wave as, as far as possible as we can into the future so we have enough time to, to, to give out boosters. And I, I, I think that would be a slam dunk argument if we hadn't started the booster campaign. But, but given that people who are at risk have been eligible for a booster for a very long time now, they've had a chance to get boosted, they had a chance to protect themselves, then I do think that, you know, well, especially the state cancelling Christmas parties would, would be, you know, uncalled for at this period of time. Obviously, I think people are right to make their own decisions and they should make informed decisions. I, I spoke on, on Wednesday's show about how I don't think the government have been particularly good at telling people what the actual risks are and how to mitigate those risks because our government, you know, just struggles, to be honest, for, for multiple reasons. I want to go on to a related story because we, we talked about the boosters they are an area where the government have done okay. Actually, so is rapid testing. Our lateral flow testing situation is is better than in America, for example. There, I think you have to pay eight to ten pounds for a lateral flow test. Here, you know, you can you can get them like candy, and which I think is a good thing. I'm glad. But those are probably the two areas which are exceptional because in the rest of our government's pandemic strategy, we've been terrible. We, we've talked about this a lot on this show. This will not be a surprise to you. What I want to talk about now, though, is a new attack by Dominic Cummings on the preparedness of the government to this new variant and other new variants. He published a blog post today, which had a lot of interesting you know, elements to it. I'm going to go through some of the key parts. So Cummings wrote, the data on Omicron is changing quickly, but like in 2020, the basics are much worse than you are hearing from most of the newspapers and ministers Omicron is spreading much faster than Delta did in a South African population that has already been widely exposed to COVID. We don't yet know how relatively deadly Omicron is. So Dominic Cummings has also noticed that our government don't tend to be particularly honest when it comes to the risks that people face. He goes on to make complaints which include a failure to develop vaccines and vaccines for variants and a failure to purchase antiviral drugs. So he says, Many times this year, I have pointed out that we should have been spending 2021 building on the vaccine task force's success and extending the principles of high performance to an antiviral task force. Instead, the PMA decided to try to rewrite history and sent out Hancock to do this across the media. B, 
allowed normal Westminster entropy to one, degrade the task force, and two, fail even to order enough antivirals, hence a quiet panic underway this week. You can see those same. The good things um, in our first round of, of the pandemic response, the vaccine task force, the only thing that, that worked quite well has been degraded, which means that we're, we're not prepared for, for this, this next phase. He's pointing out, especially their antivirals. This next bit was particularly interesting when it came to what we haven't been investing in. So Cummings wrote, the vaccine drug effort should have been and should be more diverse, e.g. almost everybody targeted the spike, the most accessible part of the virus to the immune system. Proposals to target the virus in other ways have not been properly funded. I was looking through some 2020 messages this week and it is striking that this advice was given to us in 2020, but it has been ignored instead of funded in 2021. Now, I found that really, really interesting, actually, because he's he's saying what the government has been doing is, is piling money into the existing technology. They're not taking risks on the, the more radical new technologies, which could protect us if there is a, you know, a really wild mutation. Because there have been, I've been listening to lots of scientists this week sort of saying, this one, Omicron is bad, but it, it's, it's not as bad as it could be because essentially the vaccines still work against severe disease. If you have one which has even more immune escape or a more, more radical form of immune escape, then that's when you would want these, you know, this more radical research to have been done in the meantime. And what Cummings is suggesting is that just hasn't happened. You might be thinking, look, this is just Dominic Cummings rewriting history. On this one, he does he does have some some past comments to point to. So he included in his blog a screenshot of a tweet um, that he sent earlier this year. This was in May. So why are MPs accepting the lack of a public plan now for vaccine task force vis-a-vis variants, especially when rumours reach me that the silent entropy of Whitehall is slowly turning the vaccine task force back into a normal entity? And I do remember as well when he gave his um, testimony to the select committee, one of his his big arguments. He was saying, I'm here telling you this because I want you to be asking the government what their plan is for new variants. And I have to say, I'm not sure the MPs did that because the government never explained to us what their plan was for new variants. It doesn't seem like we are on the front foot when it comes to getting ready to, to put out some, some modified vaccines for a more radical variant. Again, we should also say Twitter doesn't have an edit button. Dominic Cummings, we know, sometimes rewrites history. He's, he's, he's edited his blogs to make himself look as if he has more foresight, but Twitter doesn't have an edit button. So I think he did actually say that. I want to go to one other comment. This is the former chair of the Vaccine Task Force, which accords with what Dominic Cummings was saying in that blog. So this is a former chair of the Vaccine Task Force, told The Observer last week that the government ignored his blueprints for preparing for new variants. His plan included creating a coordinated team to seek out new vaccines and give companies involved a fast track to swift trials in return for early access to new vaccines. That's the approach he said that worked for the first generation of vaccines, but something the UK is no longer bothering to do. He said he gave his plan to the government. They didn't even reply to him. So part of his point in that Observer article was to say, look, I don't know if they're doing this because they never replied to me. All I want is a reply. And this is not just like any old Tom, Dick and Harry. This is the guy who was the former chair of the vaccine task force. So you would think that, you know, someone in the civil service would find the time to reply to him. We often go to these Dominic Cummings blogs on the show because he does have a lot of interesting things to say. And I, I feel on, on this topic, he does seem quite persuasive. He obviously likes to write his role in history as the one that was always proven right. But we talked about it earlier in the year that sort of his big pet project was these rapid tests which at the time I wasn't that convinced would be that useful because I thought well, we've got this vaccine why are we spending billions of pounds on the rapid test he said the civil 
service and the bureaucracy told him not to bother with this either. He pushed forward with it. And now we do have lots of rapid tests and they are quite useful. <laughs> I, I, am, I, am I going soft on Dominic Cummings? No, I, I think you're right. Somebody like Dominic Cummings, who's uh, quite contrarian, not, not afraid to tell the truth, happy to burn bridges if he thinks he's correct on something. Often you, you need people like that in society. Do you want somebody like that at the top of government executing? I mean, I, I personally don't think, you know, I, I think that the, the obsession with Dominic Cummings is a negative obsession with Dominic Cummings. It's partly because you know, he masterminded Brexit and lots of people don't like Brexit. I think the idea that he's sort of stupid and, and vacuous and you know, hasn't really thought lots of things through and he's just a narcissist. I, I think this is just sort of liberal cope. This is liberal cope. We're going to talk about more liberal cope when it comes to China later on the show. Um, but this is pure liberal cope. He's, he's clearly a smart guy. He's, he's clearly a very good campaigner. Of course, then you can talk about, well, he's not, you know, we, we, it's, a, it's one thing to, to talk a good game on political campaigns. It's another to talk a good game on epidemiology. But he, he, yeah, he's, he's a good problem solver. And I think we need more people like that. And I think it's important to say this from a left-wing perspective. We need more people like that at the top of government, I, I would say, from the left, who take on the treasury, who take on the civil service, who take on the machine of government. Because what COVID did to us, Michael, I think we say this nearly enough, what COVID did in 2020 and early 2021, but 2020, it was it was the equivalent of a military defeat. You know, we have our armed force in this country and they're meant to prepare us for a, a chemical weapons or a biological attack. And there are meant to be resources at the behest of the British state, which stops what happened happening. But it did happen. And it happened because the sort of state institutions overseeing all this aren't really robust enough and they're not really led effectively enough. We can talk about austerity and so on. A lot of it also does go to mindset uh, and, and how at the top of organizations, people are very happy to coast along. And of course, we know they're prone to short-termism because, well, I'm not going to be here in five, 10 years. Somebody else can deal with it. And that's not just limited to politics. That's everywhere. And so I think somebody like Dominic Cummings sort of shedding a bit of light on this, I think is very useful. And I think it is remarkable, going back to that analogy of military defeat. Imagine 1940, you're France. You've just been completely wiped out by the Germans. They've crossed the Maginot Line. You've got the Blitzkrieg, and somehow they disappear. And then you don't change anything. And you say, "Well, you know that happened." We, we you know, and of course, we've changed some things. There are vaccines and so on, but the preparedness for a unforeseen event in terms of COVID is is surprisingly low, shockingly low, especially when you consider that that mRNA vaccines can actually be designed and manufactured incredibly quickly. You know, the turnaround for some of these in terms of dealing with a new variant could be as little as six to eight weeks. That's not production and distribution in terms of creating a new one, which is remarkably quick. Yet we don't seem to be leveraging that very effectively. So I, I have to agree with him. And I, I, I should say, I, you know, I don't think the guy's stupid. I think he's clearly, a, he's clearly a relatively smart guy. He clearly reads about things relatively widely. Okay, he made a bad call on one book about super forecasting or whatever, which becomes an obsession for centrist Twitter and you know the Observer. But in reality, yes, I think he's, he's just as qualified to have opinions about these things as most senior civil servants. All governments now have said, oh, well, the rich ones at least, have said, oh, well, Pfizer and Moderna have, have given us enough, you know, we're, we're able to buy um, enough vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. So we're just going to help, we're going to get out of the market. We're done with this. We're going to focus on other things. And the, the problem there is that that does mean that this more like radical research doesn't take place. And also, you know, a bunch of Really smart people have been talking about developing, you know, a universal vaccine for all coronaviruses, something that would be able to defeat variants. 
And if you leave everything to the big pharma companies, I don't think it makes me conspiratorial to say this, they don't want a universal coronavirus vaccine because it's quite a good business model for them to have ones that target specific viruses so that they can churn out new vaccines every time a new a new um, variant comes along. But this idea that seems to be the dominant one now that we're going to have yearly vaccines, which is it's not the worst outcome. It's not the worst outcome for us, but it's not the best outcome for us, which would be we have a universal vaccine. It is absolutely the best outcome for the big pharma companies because they're going to get a constant stream of revenue from all of these governments buying these vaccines every year. So I think the idea that we can just outsource this problem to private companies has some really obvious flaws to it. Obviously, that doesn't mean we should lock out the people at Moderna and especially the people at Moderna. Pfizer didn't actually develop the vaccine. They just had access to, to manufacturing plants and made a deal with BioNTech. But there we go. Um, one more bit of the blog post I want to show you because it was particularly interesting, particularly revealing. So Cummings wrote the following. Also remember that the newspapers have a huge commercial interest in commuter traffic. They have systematically distorted COVID news from the start and the owners call the PM to tell him certain policies hint their balance sheet and he listens and acts. This vicious feedback loop is not reported on for obvious reasons, but it is but it strongly affects your information environment unless you try hard to seek information outside legacy media. Now, Aaron, that's a very radical thing to say, isn't it? That's something that I, you know, I mean, we talk about that a lot on this show. We talked a lot about how the Telegraph and, and the Times were advocating for people to go back to work because they wanted people to commute and buy the newspaper. But that wasn't something that the BBC mentioned. You know, it, it wasn't something that unless you were watching alternative media, you would have you would have realized he's not only confirming it, but saying they had a direct line to the PM. It's useful there's someone in public life saying that out loud, right? Yeah, I mean, he walks the walk, right, as well, because he's got a sub stack. You know, he hasn't got a column with the Telegraph at the Times. So he could have he could have done that. And it, it could have made him a, a bit of money, but uh, he wouldn't be saying the things he wants to say. So I've got a, I've got a little bit of respect for that. But it is ironic that, you know, I think his wife, is she a, is she a contributing editor or she has some sort of senior role at The Spectator magazine? Of course, Boris Johnson, formerly yeah. editor of The Spectator, deeply imbricated within the sort of media political nexus of this country. Dominic Cummings is right in the middle of that too. You know, his wife is at The Spectator. So, I mean, in a way, you know, doubly interesting. I wonder what the conversation is at home when, when she sees... He's written that. Uh, entirely well, he's, accurate. He's also very reactionary. So, I mean, I, I think you can see how he's married to a spectator. Like, his, his views on lots of social issues are incredibly reactionary. So, no, I mean, yeah, I'm, I think... I'm, oh, no, of course. On, I'm, I'm, uh, on, yeah. no, Michael, don't, no, no. You seem to be insinuating that I support those. I don't. Sorry, Where I think sorry, he's got sorry, quite interesting... No. He has interesting views on the, on the disruptive potentials of, of technology with regards to politics, with regards to bureaucracy, with regards to organization, with regards to media. That's, that's fine. There's lots of guys, by the way, there's lots of people in the US, men and women in the US who, on, on the right, who aren't necessarily Republican wing nuts, but have original, interesting thoughts about this stuff in Silicon Valley or whatever. You can disagree with 80% of what they say, but the other 20% is some of the most interesting stuff out there. And so I, I you know, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be, I think it's, it's very myopic to just dismiss them. Of course, I don't agree with, you know, they all moved to Texas, which is basically outlawed abortion. Yeah, I, I obviously think that's deeply reactionary and horrific. And I think ultimately it's, you know, it's the, it's the demise of democracy and, 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 and liberal states if, if that's where we're going as a civilization in the West, of course. But, you know, they might say something interesting about the potentials of cryptography and voting. I don't know. And I think, you know, I put Dominic Cummings in that bracket. And for me, yes, you don't take it as gospel. You take it with a pinch of salt. He's a bit narcissistic. Yes, he's very right wing, but he can say some interesting things sometimes. And I think as a society, Michael, we've got to a point where you sort of have to caveat every time you think somebody says something interesting. But I think, you know, their, their worldview, their perspective, absolutely everything else is horrific or this thing they said 15 years ago, oh, outrageous. I mean, Christ, when did we start doing that? 
So, you know, it's like with people like me, if somebody doesn't like me or disagrees with me and they think, oh, Aaron Bernstein's written a good thing, I think they should tweet it or say it rather than say, well, I didn't agree on his position with regards to Labour anti-Semitism. I thought he, you know, his, Jesus Christ, you know, you're going to have to give a sort of a running biblical exegesis style commentary about every single person before you share anything they've published. Anyway, I get that off my chest. No, it's a very good point. find that very convincing. I wholeheartedly agree. Let's go on to our next story. Labour's biggest funder, Unite the Union, have announced they are cutting political donations to the party. The union will remain affiliated to Labour and so pay their £1 million affiliation fee, but no additional funding will be granted. That's a break from tradition in recent years. Explaining the move, General Secretary Sharon Graham told The Guardian, There's a lot of other money that we use from our political fund where actually I'm not sure we're getting the best value for it. So that's Graham saying the extra cash Unite has been giving to Labour from its political fund is not value for money. Basically, they're not getting enough in return. Graham goes on to explain her alternative strategy and the the Guardian write this up in, in the following way. Graham said she would instead put money into campaigns that would set the pace for Labour to follow. She pointed to the Scottish government's proposals for a national care service reforming social care as an example of a cause that Unite would campaign for in the hope of influencing UK-wide policy. Quote, if we can get in a national care service in Scotland, if we can drive that through, then let's put the resource in Scotland. Let's get some campaigning going on there properly. The fact that I am being quite robust is because Labour needs to talk about workers, needs to defend workers, and needs to defend communities. Aaron, do you think this is a good move from Sharon Graham? Deeply, deeply good move. Very clever move. Appropriate move. Justified move. Um, if you look at uh, the Labour Party's sort of positioning on, on union disputes recently, and look, it, it, the leadership isn't as right-wing as Blair was regarding this stuff, although I think it's going to be eventually. If you look at, for instance, Keir Starmer, literally 12 months ago, where was he? Uh, well, more than 12 months ago, February 2020, before he was really elected leader even. Where was he? He was on UCU picket lines, happy to be supporting UCU, striking workers. Now, he can't even muster a tweet. Now, you could say, well, look, he's the leader of the Labour Party. He shouldn't be doing that. You can make that argument. I don't agree with it, but you can make the argument. But it is strange that somebody who's pitching themselves as a Labour leader will do that, and they, they don't when they're at the top. Equally, in the recent reshuffle, People moved around. There's now no longer a, a shadow a sector of state for employment rights. Seems quite a big deal if you're the Labour Party, employment rights. Uh, equally, you had Sadiq Khan, Labour mayor, attacking the the, the RMT, the you know the, the union related to uh, underground uh, rail drivers. They do more than that. Tube drivers. They do more jobs than just that on on the London Underground. Um, at attacking them on Twitter, saying they weren't actually misrepresenting what had happened. So you're having, you're having the beginnings of the Labour right have come to the fore in the party. They're not just not expressing solidarity with aspects of the Labour movement. They're actually actively pushing against them. We saw that a little bit with a lack of support towards teachers from Labour last year, earlier this year. We're seeing it increasingly now, like I say, with RMT, with UCU. Uh, Keir Starmer, as more to say, has offered more overt solidarity to trade unions as Labour leader than Blair did. Um, but I think that's, that's partly a political calculation. And that politician is, is moving away at a, rapid, at a rapid pace. You've got people like Pat McFadden going into his shadow cabinet, Wes Streeting being elevated, Yvette Cooper back as shadow home secretary. 
So the composition and the politics of the front, the front bench for Labour is, is really moving right. And I think the very limited expressions of solidarity we've seen with the Labour movement so far in his leadership, I think they're going to increasingly disappear. So I think, I think it's good that United have done this. And, and the bet from the Labour right, the bet from Keir Starmer is, we don't need you, we don't really want you, and we can get big money donors. Well, let's see. Great way to test the hypothesis. You know, Necessity is the mother of invention. And Labour politicians in the 2000s thought, well, if we reduce various benefits, well, people will have incentives to go and find more money and work that little bit harder. Let's see if that applies to the Labour Party with Unite cutting spending to, to them. Important to say, of course, it's still going to other, other left-wing campaigns, movements, causes. So I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we're, we're on a very similar page on this one. I, I think it's also worth adding, you know, some people might be watching and saying they should go the whole hog and disaffiliate. You know, they're still giving a million pounds to Labour. Why don't they, you know, just cut that link? I think the response to that is that if they did that, they would have no, no influence anymore. I think actually Keir Starmer would love it if they disaffiliated from Labour because then they'd lose their seats on the NEC, they'd lose their votes on the conference floor. What they have done is actually, I think, maximise the leverage to say, no, we're going to keep our... We're going to keep our votes on the NEC. We're going to keep our votes on the conference floor, but we're going to pay the bare minimum to do that. You're not going to get any extra cash beyond that, which we are obliged to give you to, to keep that link intact, unless you you do something for us. And as Aaron has described, Keir Starmer is, is not doing much for them at this point in time. So it's it's them using their leverage, which is which is clever, sensible. And, you know, the more effectively the unions use their leverage, the less right wing this goddamn Labour Party is going to become. So I'm all for it. Well done, Sharon Graham. Let's go to our next story. It is becoming ever clearer that Western politicians and journalists are trying to stoke a new Cold War with China. And to that end, one of the key lines that keeps being repeated is that China's investments in the developing world represent a new form of imperialism. That was a narrative pushed by the BBC's Zainab Badawi when interviewing Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados. Take a look at how Motley expertly pushes back against the line of questioning from the BBC host. I honestly would like to know why we in Barbados are so ingratiated with China. Why are we in so deep with China? So are you swapping one superpower for another? Well, once again, I regret that the person who asked the question doesn't know our history. In 1977, Barbados established relations with the People's Republic of China. And therefore, to suggest that we are now seeking to ingratiate ourselves with China means that you don't understand where we've come from or what we're doing. Um, any country that lives in this world today to exist in this world ought to have relations with every country. And China is clearly a global power. And for us not to have a relationship with China, even if we didn't have one 47 years ago, would be foolish. But you've been very complimentary about China. You had a phone conversation with President Xi mm -hmm. Jinping recently. You said this is all about strengthening the relationship with mm -hmm. China. In 2019, mm -hmm. the government signed up to the BRI, the big infrastructure projects and so on. And some people are suspicious. They think that China wants to buy the family silver. But let's put it this way. I've also been very complimentary of the Americans and the British and the Canadians. So that for me, not to be complimentary of China seems unusual. And similarly, for persons who believe that because we want to be friendly with China means that we are a pawn, tells us what they think about us in the first place. Because we are capable of being, as one, our first prime minister said, friends of all and satellites of men. 
But it's not just Barbados that's moving closer no. to China. It's the whole of the Caribbean. I mean, it's, it's the whole investment world. from China has gone up many folds. But so in is the, the whole world. If, if, you, if I look correctly, I think the Chinese hold a large, large percentage of assets within the United States of America and a large amount of their treasuries as well. So for you to focus on the Caribbean or Africa with China without recognizing the role that China is playing in Europe or in the North Atlantic countries is a bit disingenuous and really reflects more that we are seen as pawns, regrettably, rather than countries with equal capacity to determine our destiny and to be part and parcel of that global conversation to fight the global issues of the day like climate and the pandemic. All right, well, that's put me in my place, hasn't no, it? No, not at all. Mia Motlow with an incredibly impressive display there on that was the BBC World Service I think Mia Motley you probably recognize her by now because she's gone viral a number of times there was a brilliant speech about vaccine inequality a couple of months ago and then a speech at COP um, which we we showed on Tisky Sal because it was so good really remarkable really exceptional I really like her I think what's interesting is like you say she's a Labour politician and there has not been despite Barbados becoming a republic under the leadership of a Labour politician here we go oh god Aaron Bastani always goes back to Keir Starmer. But I found it strange that the Crown, you know, the Queen, the House of Windsor said congratulations on helping, you know, found a republic. It's a big deal for a country. And yet the British Labour Party couldn't say our sister party in Barbados has achieved this great thing. And, and Europe, we always say, oh, you know, and there is. There's a crisis of social democracy, lack of charismatic politicians, lack of big picture thinking. How do we own the future? Well, you've got a woman. She's, in, she's not in charge. She's the prime minister. She's the leading politician um, in a government in a country of 320,000 people. She's a leading voice on climate change. She's a, a leading voice in terms of global geopolitics. And she's putting her country first and her people first. And so I find it odd that, you know, Europeans, we always say, oh, centre-left, it's in crisis, it's falling apart. Actually, there's some really inspiring, impressive examples of centre-left politicians around the world. Mia Motley, more recently, Lou de Silva in Brazil. The point is, of course, if you're not white and if you're not in Western Europe and North America, you don't count. And of course, nothing, nothing is changing. It's a bit like, we'll talk about this a bit later on, oh, you know, global inequality, nothing's really happening on it. Oh, except if, you know, as long as we don't talk about the 800 million people moved out of, out of poverty by the Chinese Communist Party since 1990. They don't count because, of course, it's the Chinese Communist Party. No, no. We, we have to only talk about, you know, where the global south is useless and feckless and they really need us and they're dependent on the global north. That's the conversation legacy media and, 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 and the media political nexus in the global north wants to have. They don't want these people being powerful and assertive and articulate. So Mia Motley in that sense is, is, is sensational, yes. I am sort of surprised it's taken this long for a global South politician to get this platform. Because we've got Twitter, we've got Facebook, and you know, yeah, there's COP26, but there's been 25 before it. So we increasingly have these kind of global you know, uh, meetings and events and conferences. We have the transmission mechanisms to take people like this to a mass audience. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I'm kind of surprised that you have a global South politician who's massive on Instagram and Twitter, a bit like AOC is, and who isn't sort of a big variable in, in, in the global North and our political conversation. Long may it continue and intensify. I think it's a really, really, really great thing. I think it's a really positive development. Every time one of her videos goes viral, that, I mean, just because she's such a good communicator, they're, all, they're always really phenomenal. I want to I focus a bit more on the substance of the charges being made about Chinese investments in Barbados. Aaron, there you mentioned legacy media and how they cover these issues. The Sunday Times had an article on exactly this last week, which had a pretty loaded headline. 
So the headline read, Little England, not anymore, Barbados is becoming Little China. And then the subheading, awash with cash from Beijing, the island is ditching the queen. Some fear it is simply swapping one colonial master for another. So they're linking their, the investments in Barbados by China to Barbados's recent decision to leave the Commonwealth. So they no longer have the queen as their head of state. They're going to have a, a directly elected president. We can go to some of the, the content of, of that piece. So they write, Beijing's involvement dates back decades to the Chinese-built Garfield Sobers Gymnasium, an indoor sports facility that opened in 1992. But Chinese projects have multiplied since the government signed up to Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative in 2018, an office devoted to investing in Barbados, recently opened in Beijing. Under a series of agreements between the two countries, China is about to begin refurbishing the derelict national stadium in Bridgetown, upgrade the South Coast sewerage system and erect prefabricated houses made in China for people who lost homes to Hurricane Elsa in July. It has donated a coastal patrol vessel to help Barbados to defend its territorial waters and vaccines to defend against COVID-19. At a Chinese-built housing development in the Christchurch Parish, Mandarin characters were painted on the walls. A woman came to her front door to tell me that she and her neighbours were a Chinese team, I don't know why that's in scare quotes, of doctors at the local Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Then it says, I wondered if a hospital on the island will one day be named after President Xi. But completely, like, complete non sequitur there. You've got, like, all of these investments which just sound really quite good. And then suddenly they're sort of like, oh, they're going to start naming their hospitals after the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. I don't know where it came from at all. I wonder, they also did a handy graphic, a leading title there, How Beijing is Buying Up Barbados. And you can see that the Chinese flag being replaced or being being raised to replace the British flag, which is coming down because they've left the Commonwealth. A list of various investments. They've built a Confucius Institute at the University of the West Indies, refurbishment of a national stadium in Bridgetown, upgrade of a sewerage system, building a hotel spa resort. And as, as I read in that comment, you've got providing prefabricated homes and rebuilding roads. They've also sold Barbados 30 electric buses, donated 30,000 doses of Chinese vaccine, and donated a coastal patrol vessel to defend territorial waters. Now, Aaron, I have to admit, I'm not an expert on China-Barbados relations, but looking at that article and that image, it doesn't seem like that the content really justifies the leading headlines, because all of these things sound pretty good. You know, donating vaccines, that's not China buying up Barbados. That's you know, obviously there's some geostrategic sort of strategy going on there, but it's but it's a good thing. You know, people were saying this is imperialism. China is just giving these vaccines and building this infrastructure and sending these doctors because it's in their own rational self-interest. Then why don't we do it? If, if that's imperialism, why doesn't the United States do it? You know, I don't think we're talking about it today, but they've just completed the building of an electrified 400 kilometer long rail line in Laos. Laos, which is was the most bombed country in human history in terms of bombs to surface area. So American imperialism is, is sending bombs. I think they dropped something like 2 million tons worth of, um, of bombs, an extraordinary amount of, of ordnance. And China is building a rail line. But these things are the same. We don't know which is, which is the worst kind of imperialism. I, I think I know what most people in Laos prefer. It's a really sort of ridiculous argument. And I think also the the arrogance, the British. You know, it's been an independent country since the 1960s, Michael. If this was happening in the mid-60s, yeah, you're swapping arguably one colonial master for another, whatever. Let's have that debate. 
Britain's not been a colonial master in Barbados for, for nearly 60 years. What the hell is this? What do we do for Barbados? We send tourists there. That's great. I'm sure they I'm sure they're very grateful that people go there on holiday. It's good for the local economy, whatever. What does Britain do for these places? I know it does, it does marginal amounts, I know, in terms of the Caribbean, in terms of international development aid or whatever, but nothing on this scale. And I, I, so I think it speaks of two things. One is Britain's fundamental, in, or not even Britain, this, this, is, this is in the Sunday Times, right? This is not normal people. One is the British elite's inability to accept that we are no longer an empire. The other is the fact that Asia is going to be the continent of the 21st century, and to a lesser extent, Africa, after 2050, probably. Uh, whether it's growth of renewable energy, whether it's technological sort of leadership, whether it's the world's largest cities, whether it's increasing GDP, wh wh any measure, they're going to catch up. And because, of course, Asia is so much larger than Europe and North America, you know, still the GDP per capita of China is still like in, in, in nominal terms, I think one sixth of the US. So, yes, China's a very wealthy country, but on a per person basis, it's still very, very poor compared to the US. It's entering middle income status. And hope you want it to catch up, don't you? I, I thought we were told for the last 25 years that free markets and global trade was great because it rises, you know, all boats rise, oh God, except the ones in the global south. We don't want them to get too rich because they might do stuff like this. And so very odd. Yes, of course, the Chinese, the Chinese state is doing this and it, it, not, not purely from altruistic reasoning. But the whole point of trade and the whole point of international relations, Michael, is it's not meant to be zero sum. If somebody does something good and it helps another party, both sides can benefit. You know, David Ricardo talks about that with regards to trade policy in the early 19th century. That's how international relations are meant to operate. And I think the British and many Europeans and the Americans look at international relations as zero sum. Well, if you gain, then I must lose. If we give these people something, then we're missing something at home. So I'm afraid if you want to play that game of sort of a, of a geopolitical big man, you have to put your money where your mouth is. And Britain hasn't done that for a long time. The US hasn't done that for a long time. Uh, certainly on a per head basis, how much it gives abroad and so on is, is appalling. So yeah, that's, that's where we are. Get used to it. And it's very, and look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say China does everything right, has many civil rights abuses at home, et cetera, et cetera. But if in the next 30, 40 years, we move towards a Pax Sinica in parts of the world, the Chinese peace, which I think is, is, plausible. You know, it's an open question is, will it, will a Pax Sinica in East Asia be more peaceful than what we saw during the Cold War of the 60s, the 70s? I think it probably will be. Will China be a more positive force for self-government and state building in Central America than the United States was funding death squads in the 1980s? I think it probably will be. Now, the sort of leftist retort is, oh, you're just, you know, we don't back empires, you know, no to Washington and Moscow and now include Beijing too. Yeah, of course. But if you're Laotian or you're, you know, from Barbados, it's it's pretty clear which country is is more favourable and what you prefer: bombs or hospitals. Pretty easy answer. I mean, it's also I, I think there is a sort of a misunderstanding that people have, which is you know the the rise of China is taking away the sovereignty of these countries because of investment. But no, it's actually giving them a lot more choice because you know when when America was the only superpower, you either went with America or you had nothing. And that gave America total power and those developing countries none whatsoever. Now they have some bargaining power because they say, well, if you don't give us this, we'll go to China. If China don't give us this, we'll go to America. That, that's, that's quite a helpful position for countries to be in. And, and that seems to be you know, what's, what's, what's happening here. I think the vaccine situation would have been much worse, by the way, if there wasn't China there as a superpower that was also making vaccines, that was doing vaccine diplomacy and offering countries 
vaccines if the West were taking too long to do it. And I presume that also woke up some people in the West were like, well, we'll have to give some vaccines, otherwise China will get too much leverage. The rise of China, as well as, you know, alleviating poverty in that country, also gives other poorer countries leverage as well. Our next story is on a similar topic, so we should get straight on to that. Britain's liberals love dunking on Richard Bergen. Now, maybe sometimes I have a point, like any public figure, he's given the odd bad interview we all have. However, more often than not, something else is going on. They attack Bergen because he's one of the few politicians willing to speak outside of acceptable opinion among the British establishment. There was a perfect example of this. So Adam Langliban is a former Labour councillor. He shared a clip of Richard Bergen on LBC with the commentary, with the caption, this is an astonishing watch on Ian Dale's show tonight. He then went on to sort of point to um, articles which were saying the Soviet Union was wonderful. And it was shared by all of you know Britain's leading liberals on Twitter saying, what the hell is Richard Bergen doing? What an idiot. I think they were wrong. Let's take a look at the clip. We're going to talk about it. Richard Bergen, this this is it's one of those things where those policies where it's not really a party political thing, isn't it? it it's something where there ought to be unity on both sides of the house on how we deal with the the threats that are coming from China. Well, first of all, and I'm sure that Tim didn't mean it in this way, but I think things can be said which accidentally have a, a damaging impact. When he was saying that you know China has tentacles all over, you know, thirty percent of students on campuses and the rest of it, I think we've got to be very careful that where our government has disagreements with the government of China, that this doesn't end up uh, fueling uh, anti-Chinese racism in our society. Uh, people, that's not that's what it's not, about. But, that's, pe- that, but people, and that's the Chinese government. That's what they'd like you to believe. This is not about being anti-China. This is not an argument with I, I'm saying, China. It's I'm, an argument I'm, I'm with the saying, Chinese Communist Party government. I, I'm, I'm saying... Don't fall into their trap, Richard. That's I, I, their narrative. Th- th- there is an increased instance of racism faced by Chinese people in Britain, for example, in relation to, uh, in relation to COVID. Uh, and, we've got to, and we've got to guard against that. But what, what, what I'd say more widely, uh, what I'd say more widely is, look, there's things that the uh, government of the United States has done historically, which we profoundly disagree with, you know, invading other countries, using a nuclear bomb. Not committing genocide uh, against uh, millions of their own people, not responsible for the deaths of a million Chinese citizens who happen to be uh, Tibetan. This we, is we, on we, we, we need, a different scale. I think we Let's need, not try and call out, call them in the same terms as uh, as America. Uh, I, you know, I, I was referring to the, the only use uh, of a nuclear weapon uh, in war against civilian populations and the in, invasion... In war, uh, and in peace in peacetime, the Chinese... And, and, and the invasion, and, and the invasion uh, of uh, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan. So I don't really agree just to draw the, comparisons Richard between the United States and China. <laughs> the intervention from that third guest. I don't believe we should draw comparisons between the United States and, and China. Why not? Why can't we draw comparisons between countries? That's all he was doing. It's a completely reasonable thing to do. Now, that claim about a million Tibetans, I asked on Twitter where that was from. I'm still unsure. We're going to talk about this genocide issue in a moment, so I want to park that. What I just wanted to to mention from that part, we're going to watch the rest of the clip, is Richard Berger made such a reasonable point, right, which is that you shouldn't really talk about China having tentacles all around the world at the same time as talking about international students, because that's clearly the kind of language which is going to incite hatred. And I think most people would recognise that if we were talking about Israel. If you said Israel has all of these tentacles around the world... We say, no, you, sh- you shouldn't say that. You, you, you should 
you, you could talk about the influence it has around the world, but don't use terms like tentacles. That's all Richard Bergen was saying. And then that Tory MP says to him, you're just using the arguments of the CCP. And no one intervenes on, on Richard Bergen's side. No, they intervene to pile in on the side of the Tory MP. And that, uh, that piling in continues. Let's look at the, the, the next part of this exchange. The point I want to make, however, everything you've said, you could say in the States, you couldn't say in, uh, in China, anything I've said. The, the point I want to make is that, of course, we need our government to speak up for human rights around the world. Of course, we need our government to speak, including to its ally, allies like Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, about the human rights abuses there. But I think we need to avoid a rush into a new Cold War because uh, Cold Wars can become proxy wars, hot wars. Uh, that's not in the interest of anybody. And of course, our government will have disagreements with the government of China. But when it comes to climate change, for example, we do need to be working with uh, China in relation to averting climate catastrophe. And you look, for example, at the huge refugee crises that are going to be caused um, because of climate catastrophe, there's going to be a need for more international cooperation when it comes to climate change, when it comes to the flow of refugees and a whole host of other issues, diminishing resources. And that means <coughs> working with governments in other countries who we have profound disagreements I, I with have, on other in, issues. In your answer there, I haven't heard one single condemnation of, China. of anything the Chinese government has done. Inclu including on the environment. 29% of greenhouse gases are produced by, by China, way and above any other um, nation. The last 11 years, they've burnt more coal than the whole of the rest of the world put together. They are going the wrong way on climate change. We need to call them out, not say, oh, we need to sit down and be nice to them. We need to make sure we're not buying goods from them that have been produced in environmentally unfriendly ways action or is by slave action, So call action, them out, action is not needed. our allies in America uh, and elsewhere. Action is needed uh, from China. Uh, and from the United States and from the UK on climate change. However, there is a line which is incorrect that somehow people believe that per head of the population in China, their carbon footprint is greater than ours. That's not true. The average person in China has a smaller... Stop defending... I'm not... I'm not uh, we, we, the wrong we need, way on climate we, we need change. to have a sense... The important thing to caveat here is liberals are all tweeting and saying, oh, what was Richard Bergen doing? You know, they're all praising Tim Lout on this conservative MP. What happened in that exchange? Richard Bergen says, actually, when it comes to climate change, we should look at per, per capita emissions, not the total emissions of a country. Because obviously, if a country has 1.4 billion people, then if it has more emissions than a country with 60 million people, that's not a surprise. That's to be expected. Tim Lout, in response, says, stop defending China. Richard Bergen has literally just, let's look at per capita emissions instead of total emissions. Stop defending China. It's just impossible to have a reasonable conversation about China and, and, and policy in China because the moment you, you say something remotely sensible, which could be seen to, to undermine an attack on China, suddenly you are pro-China, you're a CCP stooge. And what's the most important thing here, as well as you know, the Liberals all sharing this, saying, oh, what Richard Bergen's such an idiot, Tim Lauten's so amazing, is Ian Dale always intervenes to say, Richard Bergen, why won't you condemn China? He never intervenes to say, Tim Lauten, he's, all he's saying is we should look at per capita emissions, not total emissions. Don't you think that's reasonable? No. He piles in with the Conservative there because Richard Bergen has said something which is outside acceptable opinion in the establishment. The next part of the clip is the most controversial one. This is what the stories about this led with and the thing that LBC tried to make a big deal out of. Let's take a look at the end of this clip. 
China is a superpower. Of course, there'll be things on which we profoundly uh, disagree with them. Of course, our government has to uh, hold its allies and other countries to account on human rights abuses, and those discussions need to take place. Do you believe they've but, committed genocide? But see, your do, do you believe they've committed genocide? The approach you're taking is to is ask not, you it, if you believe they've no, committed the, genocide. No, the, the approach that you're taking, uh, the approach that you're taking. Uh, is it's a straight question. You, you know, you, you, you try, you're trying to uh, basically create a political storm. No, I'm you, let me speak you, if you that's okay. Let, let, let me speak. That genocide that's okay. has been committed by the Chinese. I'm saying that our government needs to hold other governments around the world, yes, including China, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, to account on human rights abuses. But, what, but we inevitably we I'll need why, we why need why a relationship. Why, why do you find it so difficult to utter one word of condemnation about anything to yeah. do with China? I, I I find it astonishing. Again, Ian Dell intervenes. Why won't you condemn a single thing China has done? Richard Bergen kept saying we should be tough on China when they abuse human rights. I mean, he, he wasn't exactly saying, no, China's amazing. It's wonderful. And it was that, that question about genocide, which has sort of sent all the liberals wild. And LBC actually put out, I think, quite a, a cynical headline alongside this clip saying, Labour MP refuses in capital letters six times to condemn China for Uyghur genocide. Now, it's important to say he wasn't asked to, to condemn what was going on in Xinjiang. He was asked, is it a genocide? Now, I'm not an expert either on Xinjiang or genocide. But what I do know is that there are lots of very smart, very intelligent people who think that while terrible things are going on there and human rights abuses are being you know, made on a, on a mass scale, it doesn't qualify as genocide because genocide is about the destruction of a people. In, in common understanding, what it means is you, you're trying to wipe out a people. You're, you're instituting mass death. Now, what is happening in, in Xinjiang, as, as far as I understand it, is that lots of people are being forcibly put in camps. Not a nice thing to do. That, that is an abuse of, of human rights. But there is no, there is no intention and there is, they're not killing people, essentially. or They're definitely not intending to, to, to wipe out a people, to destroy a people. Doesn't mean it's fine. On most understandings, is it a genocide? I'm not sure. Human Rights Watch haven't called it a genocide. They've done a big report on all of the human rights abuses taking place. They haven't called it a genocide. Amnesty International, exactly the same. The UN haven't. The Economist did a very interesting article saying, look, what's going on in the Xinjiang is bad, but it's not a genocide. Richard Bergen now on the radio is asked, is it a genocide? Is it a genocide? Is it a genocide? He, you know, he doesn't confirm yes or no. He's probably not sure either. And suddenly this now becomes, he's a genocide denier. And also what I found ridiculous is the Tory MP says that the House of Commons called it a genocide. The House of Commons is not a leading authority on human rights. Disagreeing with the House of Commons on what is going on in another country should not be outside the bounds of respectable opinion. Aaron, I want to get your thoughts on this because Richard Bergen, you know, he got completely destroyed for this clip on, on Twitter. And I think there are some things he could have done differently in that clip. I mean, I would have said, look, I don't know if it's a, a genocide, but what's going on is, is wrong. In Xinjiang, there are mass um, sort of violations of human rights, and, and that's wrong. And we should be putting pressure on on the Chinese government to respect the human rights of, of the Uyghurs. But it was this idea that he's now a genocide denier. I just think it's it's ridiculous, and it is the sign of a new Cold War because you can't have a reasonable conversation without being made out to be morally abject. Let's wind this back. How did this start? Richard Bergen says that we should be worried about the kind of language people are using with regards to China because anti-Asian attacks are rising. Very recently, we found out that online hate speech towards Asians, I think in the UK, had risen 1,600% in 2019-2020 in uh, because of COVID. So he's right. First of all, he's right about that point. 
And then, of course, that's pushed back and said, well, you're right, but that's the line of the CCP. Well, it doesn't matter if it's the line of the CCP. How does Tim Loughton know that of all people? It's true. It's accurate. It's facts. Let's not do fake news and spin. It's a fact. And especially for British Asians, that's a hugely important issue. It shouldn't just be ignored by one of the two major parties or by a major media outlet like the LBC. And somehow we've gone from a Labour politician saying we shouldn't allow language which demonizes certain minorities to infect our political discourse. We've gone from that to you deny genocide. Well, first of all, like you say, Michael, there are, I think it's inarguable, quite major civil liberties compromises happening in, in, in Xinjiang. Um, Xinjiang is effectively a frontier province of China. There's been a history of, of, of mass displacement, ethnic cleansing in the 18th century, actually, um, as it was integrated into, into the Chinese polity. So we, we can have that as a conversation, perhaps. But actually, it's, in terms of it being disputed or not, you've got lawyers from the State Department, Michael, saying it doesn't qualify as a genocide. You've got The Economist. So if somebody says that and they're, they're reasonably informed, they say, well, look, I don't know the scale of it. But these are pretty eminent sources. And, and they, they will sort of indicate we shouldn't jump to conclusions about this. Again, you know, I thought we were meant to be in a, in a world where it's facts over feelings. The worst people when it comes to this, Michael, is legacy media. Ian Dale, a failed Tory parliamentary candidate, might I add. Not just some indifferent, objective pundit. No, my God, it's like watching WrestleMania and four people gang up on one guy. So I, I did feel sorry for Richard Bergen because on the stats, on the facts, he was not wrong. On climate change, China is a failure on climate change. They've produced, and it's true, they've produced 30% of the world's CO2 emissions. It's, it's 1.4 billion people. It, it's, it's, one, it's literally one point, what? Is Malta and Iceland and Lithuania going to produce more CO2 emissions than China or India? Of course not. But on a per head basis, Chinese emissions are about, uh, to the best of my recollection, it's about a third of what it is in the US and Canada or Australia. So this is, a, this is a ridiculous thing to say. And if you, again, reply with facts, with statistics, well, sorry, my friend, in legacy media world, they don't matter. What matters is feelings. Oh, well, now you're saying facts. Why are you defending the Chinese Communist Party? China has more solar and wind capacity than the US, than the EU. It's going to grow its solar and wind capacity. You know, it's, it's accelerating. I think it's got, more, it's got more solar than the US and the EU combined. You know, I wrote an article about this for Navarra Media. There's been reforestation over the last 30 years to such an extent that it's now visible from space. Almost all of that has been done by China and India. Now, tree planting, as we said time and time again, has its downsides, complicated. You can't just plant any tree anywhere. But that's far more than what we've seen from the US and from, and, and, and from uh, the European Union. So yes, China is a leader on climate change. What does that tell us? It tells us two things. The rest of the world isn't doing very much, particularly the Anglophone countries, particularly Australia, the US, Canada. My God, Australia doesn't have a single kilometer of high-speed rail. China has 37,000 kilometers, right? Which country do you think is doing more to get rid of internal aviation, which is incredibly intense when it comes, and shouldn't be happening when it comes to fossil fuels and climate emissions? Which countries, but if you say, look, China has 37,000 kilometers of high-speed rail, Australia has zero. Clearly on this, China is a climate leader. How dare you defend Beijing, Aaron Bastani? So let's have an adult debate. The problem is we can't, Michael. We can't because of these dull, uninformed, incurious, cantankerous old men which have strangulated, asphyxiated, and 
contorted British civil society out of all recognition. So any conversation around climate change or civil rights abuses in China inevitably descends into triviality, farce, and nonsense. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to take the State Department's lawyers in regards to what's happening on in Xinjiang over Tim Lawson. Yes, of course I am. Or The Economist magazine. Hardly a friend of the People's Republic of China, let me add. Where are we? My God, it's just, a, this is a, that whole interview, it's actually, it was tough for me to watch, Michael. It's like a six-minute advert as to what's wrong with British legacy media and politics. Appalling. Absolutely no, it was, it was comms. It was political communications. It was spin. There was absolutely no intent there to inform the audience. And, and literally, whenever Richard Bergen tried to do that, hate crime has gone up against Asians in the, in, in the UK since COVID. True. Chinese per capita emissions are lower than you know, the US. True. If you ever do that, actually, it's contested about you know, what precisely is going on in Xinjiang in regards to whether or not it's genocide. I think that's quite an important thing to say. And look, there are actually, I think... People don't know this in terms of what the threshold to genocide is in terms of the UN um, definition of it, it. It's probably not what you think. So, for instance, if there's a consistent effort to lower birth rates, if you're moving people around, et cetera, et cetera, it can constitute a genocide. So it, it, there's, a, there's, there's a discussion to be had there. But if, if what's happening in Xinjiang is a genocide, then what Britain did in Kenya in the 1950s was a genocide. I doubt Tim Loughton wants to have that conversation, though. I was worried actually when I watched that clip because you know people talk about a new cold war with with China and you know I'm interested in this sort of like intellectually I've never sort of seen it that visceral but I think that fact of just having all of the people on that panel apart from the comedian who was silent just ganging up on Richard Bergen as you say Aaron they're not interested in facts it is just you cannot say this here I've had some people say to me yeah but Richard Bergen could have been more persuasive in that clip now for one I think he did pretty well everything he said was true but also, it is so difficult making a reasonable point when you've got two panellists and the host rounding on you. Because everything you say, they're jumping down your throat. And this is how this, you know, this is how they manage to marginalise left-wingers. Because, oh, the left, the left they're, they're so unpersuasive, they can't argue. And that's because it's always four against one. And when it's four against one, it's very hard to sound calm and convincing because you are being attacked. And he was being attacked there. And if it was, you know, if it was just Richard Bergen and Tim Loughton, you know, it's fine to have that kind of debate on radio. They had different opinions and they, they argued it out. Fine. I don't think Tim Loughton was particularly persuasive. Some people will find him persuasive. But it's the fact that you've got Ian Dale only piling in on one guest. You've got the other panellists only piling in on Richard Bergen. And then to add insult to injury, it then gets tweeted by all these liberals saying, oh, Richard Bergen, what an idiot. Yay to this hawkish Tory MP. It does make me feel like British foreign policy could go somewhere quite bad when it comes to China over the next few years. Um, Aaron, uh, before we wrap up, any final points from you? Yeah, I thought as well on the, on the foreign policy issue on, on Iraq. Oh, how dare you compare it to Iraq? You know, as many as a million Iraqis died as a result of American and British foreign policy choices. A million. So when there are human rights abuses in Xinjiang, we have to talk about that nonstop. But if you talk about a million people in Iraq dying and us creating a, a series of failed states, look at displaced peoples right now, Syria, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan. Those are the leading sources of displaced peoples in the world. We're responsible for that. We are responsible for that. And the level of schadenfreude, but I think it's not even that. Cognitive dissonance. The West can't accept that it's responsible for these things. And, and, and worst of all, Mike, we haven't even talked about this yet. This could be a whole show. America's never committed a genocide. 
America's based on genocide. There's a really good argument that the first episode of man-made climate change was the result of us killing so many people in South America that forests grew back and it had an impact on the global carbon cycle. It changed global temperatures. That's how big it was. And I think those are sins per perpetuated and committed by the West, which understandably are so big, we've still not come to terms with them. You know, why do you think the Atlantic slave trade existed? Why did 12 million people go, go from Africa to the Americas? It's because we killed all the indigenous people. So you have these people saying, America has never committed a genocide. Maybe they've just not read a single history book, which says a lot given the guy is a British MP and the other guy is hosting a radio show and is meant to be a current affairs pundit. You actually reminded me of one part of the clip that I forgot, which is when he says, but that was in, this is in peacetime, that was in wartime. Now, human rights abuses in wartime, it's, it's not a justification that it was wartime if you started the war and you started the war as an act of aggression. So you can't say, oh yeah, we committed all of those human rights abuses in Iraq and we killed all those civilians, but it was war. You started the war. You can't say all is fine as long as war is going on and then you just start all of these wars. And to be honest, that is all how, you know, the US often argues, right? It said, oh no, we would never do that to our own people. We just do that to other people and that's fine. <laughs> Repressing your own people, oh, obviously the Americans do do that, by the way. But it's, like, oh, it's, it's crossing a line if you repress your own people, but killing millions of foreigners, that's actually an honorable thing to do. That's the argument he was putting forward, essentially. If any country in the global South had the incarceration rate of the United States, they would be justifiably labeled a global pariah. Double standard does my head in. But look, Michael, it's the weekend, I can relax. I wish all of our audience a, a good weekend and hopefully they'll be restored by the Saturday and Sunday. I will echo you wholeheartedly there. We will be back on Monday at 7pm. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your super chats and your comments. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.